RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. Hello, Brian. Hey, Dusty. How's it going? I'm doing well. You ready to record another episode? Yeah, but there's something strange going on right now. There is. We have a third person in RFC Studios with us. Who is this person? Hi, guys. <laughs> so Mike's here. Uh, we're finally recording an episode that I didn't run. This is Dusty, that, that I did not DM, and I'm very excited to talk about lessons that I learned as a player. Uh, Mike is here to talk to us about the Cobalt Hall that he DM'd. Yep. Uh, thanks for having me at the uh, RFC Studios. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. I'm trying to remember this game. I don't remember playing this game for some reason. So, yeah, you uh, you you were invited, but you chose to go on vacation instead. I think, if I, I remember correctly, uh, I said, hey, guys, can you move this one? Because we had moved it, I think, the time before for you or Chris won. And we, we promptly said no. <laughs> and you promptly said no. Well, it had, so this is back when we rarely played. We played once every six weeks, and uh, just I think we were all going through withdrawal. So sorry, Brian. Yeah, my my bad. We uh, we wish you were at this game. It, it would have probably been more fun who with knew, you. Who knew that we would be talking about it years later on a podcast? Nah, none of us. Probably, probably not me. All right. So, uh, Mike, you want to carry? Like, so, what was the setup for this game? This this was the first game that you DM'd. Yep. You'd played in several of my games, and, and you caught the, the DMing bug bit you. Yep. And you were like, I I want to run an adventure. And uh, I can't remember, like, what made you want to run Cobalt Hall out of the back of the DM's guide? Um, probably that it was a super easy adventure to set up. It was there. It was ready to go. It required no monetary investment. And um, I, I think probably the thing was just that it was it was a simple adventure. It was only a series of four or five encounters um, that was easily, easily spelled out. Um, I think at that time we were also just looking to see who else could possibly DM because I'm I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but I think you were maybe starting to feel a little burn on being a DM, or at least you just wanted an experience as a player. So it was a chance for for us to kind of swap, and I would run a game, and you would DM it, and it'd give us both a little different experience in in D and D. You know, it's funny that you say that. So I'd forgotten that I burned out. So I've been a, I've been DMing for so long now. You know, seven years, as Brian and I often say, I don't feel burnout at all. And we play now way more than we ever did before. I think the reason I'm not burning out now is I'm not playing fourth edition. Absolutely. So um, when when I was looking at this material, trying to remember, because it's been so long, one of the things I actually came across was uh, in the back of the book and folded in the, in the back of my DM manual, um, there's photocopied PC combat card and monster combat card. And basically this comes from a page in the book that they tell you to photocopy and then cut these out and then fill them out. So literally for every encounter, for every creature you encounter, you have a piece of paper card and there's, there's like a ton of crap on this card. So just to prepare for even a simple combat encounter, you, you literally have a pile of paperwork that you have to prepare. And there's, there's two, three, four, there's eight eight separate little boxes kind of at the top of this card that have condition slash end state. And then below that, there's a checkbox for second wind use action points used bloodied healing surges used. And then there's like 20 boxes for healing surge, a box for damage taken and a box for notes and then some, some conditions and stuff. So it's kind of like a cheat sheet, but 
I mean, I, w- I literally sat there with like a box of index cards pre-filled out for all my monsters. And then for every encounter that started up, I had to fill out a box for every player in that encounter, put them in order of initiative, and do paperwork for that combat. Man, you're taking me back to 4th edition. Yeah, I did the same thing. I actually had this in Vizio, and I would make all the monsters in Vizio and print them out into a deck of cards along with PC cards back when I DM'd. And yeah, when we rolled initiative, I would I would put the cards in that order. And then I could just flip the cards, you know, in my hand to, to get us through combat rounds and then track condition. Oh, oh, yeah, I forgot. This monster was poisoned last round, so he takes poison damage and he needs to roll a saving throw. And this, oh, God, it was so much to keep track of. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I was definitely burning out. Um, it's funny. Another quick anecdote before we get going on the adventure. Um, this is revealing about me. I am so bad at reading the books cover to cover. Like I, I, I never read my RPG books cover to cover that I remember you telling me, yeah, I'm just going to run the, the dungeon in the back of the DM's guide. And I was like, there's a dungeon in the back of the DM's guide? <laughs> For our first game, I had made up all my own. Like The first episode of the podcast is about our first game where I made up all my own stuff. I, I got monsters out of the monster manual, and I completely made up an adventure, having no idea that there was a sample adventure in the back of the DM's guide. You dummy. Yeah, I know. I know. I should I should I should read my books cover to cover, but I just don't. I read the parts that I need when I need them. Yep. So so I think that's that's kind of the the, the reason I chose this was I knew I was going to struggle with just the the minutia of setting up and running a game, so I wanted a nice simple easy game to run. And um yeah, this this is a simple easy game to run. Dude, one thing 4th edition did well was first level characters. Um and what I mean by that is is at first level, you felt like a hero. You felt yeah. like you weren't gonna gonna explode when an enemy touched you. Um, you had quite a few hit die at that point. Like basically, a, a level one character in fourth edition was like a level three character from third edition. Yep. Like you had a lot of hit points. You had a lot of things you could do. And really, when you started out the game, when you started out a new game of fourth edition with a first level character, this first level character was established and kind of a badass. Um, unlike earlier editions or, or to the latest edition where a first level character is, is just sort of barely better than your average guard. And, and it, it was kind of always my theory that they made it that way so that they could sell you the, the little character card packs to go with your first level character. Cause you know, if you have to be level three or five before you need like your five encounter action cards, they're, they're probably never going to sell that. So if they make that level one character, you know that that hey i'm already i'm already badass and i've got like five abilities that i need these little cards for if i don't want to handwrite them all down and try and keep them on a sheet then yeah that's i think that's kind of why they did it that way yeah that makes sense um i had a lot of fun in fourth edition running first level adventures and then it, beyond first level it just got to be too much paperwork like you said too paperwork for the dm for that deck of of encounter cards that you're shuffling for all the monsters and tracking their stats and their action points and their conditions and all that and same thing for the for the player characters um and then for the for the players when you use the official character builder all those freaking cards i remember so and i'm I'm jumping into a lesson learned here already before we even start as i built my characters for your game yep uh, i built my first level characters i came in and i i bought i was i never played before i dm'd you guys for like, like a year at this point but i hadn't played yet i had to go out and buy a freaking binder and one of those binder sheets that have like the nine holes in it for for the for the different cards. 
I had to go out and buy several of those to fit all the cards for my first level characters. Um, we knew it was just going to be two of us playing. It was Chris and I playing with Mike DMing. And because of that, each, Chris and I both had two characters. I ran a Dragonborn Paladin, I think, maybe a Cleric. Yep. And then I also ran a, a straight-up Minotaur, just fighter. Yep. And uh, those two characters, I bought a binder to put the character sheet in and then to put all the cards in. And I had paper clips that I bought, these plastic paper clips, that I could throw in, in, in a card pocket to track if I'd use that power. Yep, I uh, I actually had forgotten that until you mentioned it. But yeah, that to to play a game at an entry level, you you made a significant material investment, which which I think you know, kind of kind of saying on here, the lesson learned is I I think wizards kind of had a lesson learned with that, and they they removed a lot of that barrier to entry with with the fifth edition at all. Um, I mean, I I as a player for fifth, I've purchased books i purchased a team guide a player's guide but i can't really say i've ever actually had to use them yep i guess my lesson learned i I wasn't clear i talked about having this experience as a player for the first time and having to buy the binder really the lesson learned for me here was i'd been dming this game for a year i I had no idea what the player experience was like of all the shuffling and then the cards and the powers and the choices so if if you're gonna i guess the lesson learned here is if you're gonna run a game try to play in a game you know yeah. Do your best to some, and if you're if you're forever DM like me, that's a tall order. I guarantee you, a lot of people are rolling their eyes, going, "I would love to play in a game. How could I do that?" Um, don't know. It's hard to do. Get a friend like Mike to run you through a game and, and just try being a player. All right, Mike, you want to set us up on? Hey, on, one, one thing. Yeah, Craigslist. I was so in, uh, in of Mice and Men. If you remember at the beginning of it, the author was talking about how he wanted to get into a game. And he actually oh, looked. Dyson Men. You said, uh, when you said of, of Mice and Men, I was like, yes, Heming, yeah. Hemingway Hem- DM? No, that was uh, Steinbeck. They, they sell rabbits Steinbeck, on Craigslist? Yeah. List. yeah, sorry, of Dyson Men. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, uh, yeah. So in the, if you remember in the beginning of the book, he was talking about how he wanted to find a game to play. And he looked, I think it was on Craigslist. And he found a group of people in his area to play. Apparently, that's a really common way for people to get into games. You know, we should have a homework episode where we do that. We go on Craigslist, we find a random game, we each go play in a different random game and, and report back on it. That, that'd be interesting. I would have to interact with people. I'm, I'm scared of people I don't know. See, and that sums up the hobby right there. Pretty much, yeah. I, I love that, that meme, that D&D meme, where it's like, world's geekiest hobby requires friends. Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would have real social anxiety of going onto Craigslist and being like, Hey, strangers, let's play D&D together, and then showing up at just some dude's house. Well, we hopefully we'd go to a gaming store. Uh, hopefully. Or we could re- we work in a big office full of thousands of people. There are other people that play. I recently introduced, and by recently I mean seriously a uh, week before last, a group of new players to basic fantasy roleplay with, uh, with the Terror on the Kataro, the, 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 the steamship game. That's awesome. Um, my old boss's boss, who's no longer with the company, great guy, loved the guy. Um, he played when he was younger. Um, another mutual friend of ours, Jeff, he played when he was younger as well, if you recall. I don't know if he mentioned that to you. Um, and another mutual friend, uh, that, you know, that I've become acquainted with recently, Joe, he's a fan too. And that's just three people that, that happened to come up in conversation with, with thousands of other people to potentially mine from. 
we need to offline off the show touch base on that and see if we can get together a kind of a newbies or refresher game and then report back out to the podcast i love that idea that'd be cool all right let's cut it over to mike and and mike sorry we keep talking over you you um set us up on the on on, what, what is the setup for this dungeon um, well, the, the book has three hooks and I honestly can't remember which one we used cause none of them were really appealing. So I'm wondering if this is maybe where I just kind of came up with my own hook or we skipped it completely and just said, Hey, let's, let's go do this dungeon. But I, I also kind of remember that, that when we, when we set up this group of characters, these guys were existing in the same world of Fallcrest that our other characters were in. So this was kind of like uh, you're in the same setting, you're in the same people. You may or may not eventually run into your other characters, but you're you're separate people in this world. Um, so this is where this is where my failing memory comes in, and I don't remember how I got you guys hooked into this dungeon. Um, I'm pretty sure. So I do remember the captain. Nathan, so we were hanging out, and you wanted us to be hanging out. You, you were we were we as DMs. We we collaborated. We had lunch before we ran this game. And we were saying, you know, this should if it's in Valkyrie 2, it should really be a shared world. And you were like, sure, but I don't want to do any crossovers yet. And uh, you wanted to be in a different bar. Yep. So our our main game took place in and around the Silver Unicorn, just like the Penny Arcade podcasts. So our main group, my the, the, the game that I ran was mostly based out of the Silver Unicorn. You wanted a different bar. So we, we, we looked in the in the, the write up on the Nintendo Vale and on Fallcrest, and discovered the Nintir Inn. Ah, that I am remembering. So it's kind of a lower-rent bar. So our level one characters, so at, at the time our main character was like level three or four, our level ones for this game were hanging out, hanging out in the Nintir Inn, and, uh, oh, I remember, dusk had just happened. Yep. And uh, we had just, our main group had just been responsible for the deaths of several citizens of Fallcrest. So Nathan Faringray came to came to us, according to you, and basically offered to pay us adventurers to go on this adventure. And he said, you know, he had this other group of higher-level adventurers that could knock this out, no problem, but really they were kind of persona non grata right now, so he wanted to leverage us. I do remember that. And, yeah, that, that, that would explain why we didn't use any of these hooks in the book. I think uh, I think basically I just took one and, and, yeah, modified it, like you said, to do to do the captain to, to give you the quest just to go clear out this kobolds. Yeah, and that's a great lesson learned. Um Make make the hook relevant to your, your players and your game, and have a, so again have that metagame conversation. So DM to DM, Mike and I had this metagame conversation around. Hey, look, it's too early for us to encounter the other group. Let's base ourselves in a different bar, uh, and let's do some different things, and let's tie the adventures in a little bit with tangential mentions of the other characters, but no crossovers yet. Yep. And as for the dungeon itself, um, it was a pretty quick dungeon, if I remember correctly. It's only five encounters. It's a relatively small dungeon map. Um, and I actually just put the map together from photocopying the dungeon tile on the very last page of the Dungeon Master's Guide. And then uh, I just outlined the shape of each area encounters on that photocopy and then taped the pieces together. <laughs> so, was- so Mike brought the, the, that map. Brian, are you going to grab some pictures of this before we uh, we post it? Like maybe we could put it in the show notes. But Mike, I probably we're, should do that, shouldn't I? Yeah, where Mike laser copied these and, and and then sharpied and color penciled and crayoned the map. These were fantastic maps. These were uh, these were great visuals. 
they, they were very low tech, low rent maps. You say that, but they followed the. I mean, unlike subsequent fourth edition adventures, this adventure paid no mind to dungeon tiles. Yeah, like there was no like, like for Cairn of the Winter King, every room in that dungeon map corresponded to a dungeon tile that you could purchase, um, and and it was all very organized. This map for Cobalt Hall was just a, a, a kind of crazy, wonky, um, not eight by eight squares map, and you cre- you recreated it wonderfully, faithfully with your with your laser printed and with your laser printing and your and your sharpening and your drawing. All right, so we're hired to clean out this this hall. Um, Chris was playing a ranger, and I think he'd never played a magic user before, so he was either a wizard or a sorcerer. I can't remember which. I think he was so, a wizard. So a ranger and a wizard for Chris. I was a cleric or a paladin. I forget which. Let's just call it paladin. I don't yeah. think I had any healing spells. No. So I was a paladin and a, and a minotaur fighter. And for me, my, 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 my thing I want to do as a player, I, I played totally total non-humans. The minotaur and the dragonborn, I really wanted this experience of playing kind of some monstrous heroes. And I had fun with that. So I remember, we, I remember you were very excited about playing the minotaur. I bought the player's handbook three yep. for this. Just just so you could roll a Minotaur for your for your player experience. And I, I felt glad that I could I could help you enable something that you've been wanting to do and, and also enable an additional purchase to your collection. <laughs> I, I I had had been I have had been off and on over the years, but then off for the last eight years. Um a WoW fan and a WoW player. And I am a I, I play Torin. I love the Torin. So for me to play a Minotaur in fourth edition was perfect. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just I just no. wanted to mention your Minotaur because I remember you were really you were really tied into him. Yes, I was. But uh, but yeah, you 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 had played either a Paladin or a Cleric or a Minotaur, and I also remember kind of giving you guys a hard time that uh, that we had opened it up that each of you would be playing two characters, and neither of you bothered to bring anyone with any healing ability at all. Which, which was pretty much a theme for our games up to these points, because getting a healer in our games is like pulling teeth. I had, I had ran one for a while, and I think you guys mentioned this in a previous podcast, that I had gotten burnt out on him so much that we decided to do the heal turn with him because I was sick of being the party healer. Heal turn, H-E-E-L. Yes. Because we're talking healers and heal turns. Heal, H-E-E-L, not H-E-A-L. But healer, H-E-A-L. Yes. Anyways, is this the second wrestling reference that we've made on this podcast so far? Mm, well, no. I think it's the second. It, it's it's the it's the second reference to the same reference. Oh, gotcha. Because yes. yes, yes. it's heel turn both times. All right. So, Mike, uh, what, what first room? Yep. Uh, first room was the sludge pit. Um, this is a very simple kind of silly room. Um, they put a sludge pit in it, I guess, just in case someone wanted to fall into the sludge pit, or I think. Uh, I think I did some uh, some combat to try and get these uh, these kobolds to, to push you guys into the sludge pit, but uh, nothing really happened with this one. Basically, it was a, hey, there's a pit, you fall into it, it lessens your falling damage because you fall into a bed of sludge, but then you're immobilized with the sludge unless you make a saving throw. Um, straight up, simple room for four enemy encounters. Um, I think there were three melees and two, two ranged, but uh, otherwise nothing... Nothing really stood out on this room. Actually, this is the room where I learned that former DMs make the most challenging, kind of whiny players. Yeah. So I gave you a hard time in this room. And Did you? Yeah. So there's the sludge pit in the middle of the room, and I don't know if you remember this, but we had, I had uh, 
I had my Dragonborn advance pretty quickly on the Sludge Pit because he had uh, a shield and, and a little and a little Warhammer, a one-handed Warhammer. And I, I, I narratively kind of described him holding this giant kite shield out in front of him and advancing quickly and working his way around. And uh, the Cobalt Slingers um, got in some hits on me after my turn was over. And I remember kind of being like, but Mike, I'm holding a kite shield in front of me, and those are sling stones. That doesn't make any sense. And uh, you looked at me and were flat out like, well, that's the rules. They beat your AC, so they, they scored the attack. And I think uh, I think maybe you were also just having a little fun with me, because I know I sometimes, uh, especially when we started playing early, you know, challenge the logic of how does this little tiny thing dare do damage against me, who's, who's basically a hero in a full armor set? You know, if that were in real life, I'd just laugh it off and, and nothing would happen. Um, so I think you, I think you maybe were jabbing back at me a little bit when I would do the same. You know, it's funny. I, I wish I, I wish I could say that I was, but I wasn't. I was just being a whiny player. <laughs> and here's a huge lesson that I learned that I do want to spend just a second on because I think it might help some DMs out there talk to players like this. Because, uh, because I came around to it when you were like, "Well, that's the math of the game, and that's how it works." I was like, "Yeah, fair enough." And that worked in the moment. And then as as our game matured over the years, I really think of hit points very differently now than i did before yeah i thought of every hit point as a wound like when you lose your first hit point like if, if your max is 37 hit points and you lose one hit point and you're down to 36 i thought you know you're probably bleeding like that's what i thought hit points were but that fourth edition concept of bloodied yeah. at half hit points yeah that really helped me and, and and honestly my favorite two books my favorite two rpg books ever that i have read close to cover to cover are from fourth edition the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 and the Player Strategy Guide. And I think it was the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 where they had a little section about how to think about hit points. And then I introduced this to you guys. Those first several hit points, up until about half, you're just getting battered. You're taking some fatigue. You're taking some bumps and bruises. You, you, you know, maybe maybe those, those, those sling bullets did just hit my shield. And you know, it makes your arm sore and tired and fatigued. And you don't really take your first cut, your first wound, until you're bloodied, until half hit points. Yep. So when you think of hit points where every single hit point lost is, is a wound, then yeah, it doesn't make sense for kobolds to be able to throw sling stones at you when you have a giant kite shield and, and wound you. But when you think of hit points as more of an abstraction, and you think of them as, as really covering your ability to defend yourself at first, and then when you're halfway through your hit points boom, you do take a wound. Uh, it makes a lot more sense. And having that shared understanding of what hit points means helps. And, and what also helped me, too, is the game has math, and the math is inviolate. The math should not be messed with. Um, and then you tell your story around the math. So if these kobolds hit my AC, and they hit me, even though I have a kite shield, then I don't get to say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Instead, I have to say, how can I make that make sense? Okay, what... So clearly, this was a pretty tough shot, but hey, they made it. How can I narrate that so that it does make sense? And that's the challenge for me. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fair. Um, I think when I was DMing too, I kind of took some shortcuts, and it's like, oh, well, they got past your shield, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I think the other way does make more sense is that it's it's a weakening of your character. It may not be a direct wound, a direct wound with a with a with a direct result, but 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 weakening your overall stamina, your overall resolve. So years later, Mike, thank you for, for 
tolerating my BS right out of the gate in the very first freaking encounter. That's what that's what DMs do, right? I mean, you've been tolerating our BS for how many years now? Yeah, but yeah. I have such a vivid memory of, of this room and hold him holding. I remember doing the motions at the table. If he's holding a shield like this and he's got his, war, his, his hammer up on his shoulder and he's advancing around this pit. Um, such good memories of, of, of this whole dungeon. Sorry, uh, second room. <laughs> Um, second room, I think was, uh, was actually my very first trap to, uh, to DM as a DM. Uh, so this second room had, uh, had some sort of, sort of some sarcophaguses in it. Um, a couple of melee guys, sarcophagi, thank you. A couple of melee guys. And then, uh, two dart traps that, uh, that basically were triggered, uh, by certain, uh, squares in the room that, that were predetermined as if you stepped into this square, it would trigger this dart trap. If you stepped into this specific square, it would trigger that dart trap. And I think, uh, I think you had some pretty interesting RP in this room with your Minotaur. Yeah. So the Minotaur, so both my, so both the Paladin and the Minotaur were very heavily armored. And, uh, the Minotaur stepped on a, on a, on a trap thing and you rolled an attack against me, but I think you rolled a one or you rolled a two or three. You rolled incredibly low yep. against my very high AC and I, I, I laughed and I was like, I'm going to role play this. Like, like he doesn't know that this happened. And you guys were like, okay. So we had this whole RP thing where Chris's characters were like, no, there's a trap. And the Minotaur's like, guys, the room is not trapped. Watch. <laughs> and I had him like jump up and down on the center plate. And, yep. and you rolled like three more attacks against me and they all missed <laughs> yeah. because of the very high AC. And he's like, see, nothing's happened. Meanwhile, darts are plinking off his shield. It, it's, it's, it's fun to turn those moments like a very low roll or something into just a bit of role play. Uh, and if you guys at home are cringing, like, Oh God, what a prima donna player. You're right. I was, <laughs> I had gone a year over a year and, and, and had been DMing and I hadn't gotten to play. So yes, I was being that player every step of the way where every scene was about me. And, and, and you know, that's okay. Uh, especially since it was just two players, I think, uh, I think since it was just you and Chris, you you probably definitely felt like, hey, I've I've got to kind of step it up so we can make it through this adventure and just not feel like it's a like it's a slog. So I think that worked out all right. Yeah, and I don't remember. Did I step on Chris? Like, did I keep him from having his moments? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, and this may be a false memory. This may just be my my putting my own memories of playing a, a wizard onto Chris, but I think. I think he was having a hard enough time trying to figure out how to play a wizard for the hard time, but he was more engaged of how the hell do these mechanics work rather than, oh, I need to RP and have a good time. And I remember he he pulled my fat out of the fire a few times, so to speak. Yep. So uh, I think he had a lot of fun with that. Chris, Chris before had been the player who always played those irresponsible characters, like the kind of the irresponsible hotheads. And I think I think he had fun playing the more responsible character because there was someone at the table who was, you know, out irresponsibling him. Which which is a high, highly, highly uh, difficult feat because Chris often pulls us into danger territory, which makes the game very, very interesting and more, more fun. All right, so the third, and I remember the third room. I remember your narration of the third room. Skull, skull! Yep, yep. I think I probably had the most fun with this room. So so basically this was, uh, this was a set of kobolds playing essentially tetherball with this uh rock on a rope that had this uh this this the sticky goop on it basically the goop that was in the goop trap in the bottom of this room 
and the uh, the idea of the game is they would they would sling the ball down at these skulls set up on uh, on tombs on sarcophagi, and if they uh, if they hit the skull, the the rock would attach to the skull and it would pull it back up, and then they'd do something with the skull. I can't remember exactly that, but the idea of it was was that it was a uh, a boulder on a rope that they could sling at the player characters, and if they got hit by the boulder, then they would get pulled down into the goop pit that was at the bottom of the room. And uh, basically, they'd be immobilized in the range of the, uh, excuse me, in the range of the uh, the ranged attackers. So uh, this this actually probably was the the most dangerous trap of the dungeon. And I think at least one of you, if not a couple, wound up in the goop trap. Uh, it definitely wasn't the most dangerous. The next room, oh, had, the next room yeah. had the trap that almost killed me. Yeah. But right. looking at looking at the stats right now, so both Mike and I have our fourth edition dungeon master guides in front of us. The the monsters, right? The the, the, the cobalt slingers, the cobalt minion, the guard drakes, they were rocking like plus sixes and plus fives in their attacks. The skull skull stone had a plus eight. Yeah. So the skull skull stone was definitely the uh, like like it was in your best interest as DM to have the cobalt man that skull skull stone and use that skull skull stone. That that's what was going to hit us and and it it dinged us up pretty good. We had to rush across this room through the skull skull danger zone. Um, which is which is defined in that little map as the rocks area of attack to get up those stairs past the guard drakes past all that to, to to take out all the cobalt and it was a pretty tough encounter we'd had several we, we'd already had the encounter in the first room um with the cobalt slingers we, we had the trap encounter which had a couple of cobalts scattered in there too a few skirmishers but this was the first room where i was like crap i might die yeah i uh uh, this room was definitely a softening up for for the next room, so I'm glad you mentioned that because that 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 next room is pretty rough. But uh, but your narration here was top notch. Like, like you did several things as a DM differently than I did, uh, and you spent more time making the narration your own, and 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 you got really into the cobalt voices. I'll never forget you going skull skull whenever the cobalt <laughs> like like we had whenever passed they a got stealth the check. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We passed a stealth check, and we were able to watch the Cobalts play the game for a round or two, and you narrated the game beautifully. And I was like, oh, I've got to do more of that as a DM. I, I'm glad you have a good memory. I, I remember I remember narrating the Cobalt some. I don't remember doing as good of a job on it as you say, but uh, I'm glad I, I made this room come to life for you. Yep. All right. Uh, area four, quote, the big boss. Yep. So this was... Uh, this was the next to the last, yeah, the next to the last uh, end of the dungeon. So basically, this was the last room where you encounter the kobolds, and um, I, I think I maybe remember that that there was a little bit of a physics question in here because this room essentially was a, a square room with just a giant boulder that kept rolling around in the square room. Yeah. And I think we all just kind of had to suspend disbelief for a moment and, and be like, how does this boulder just keep rolling around the room? Because it didn't stop. Yeah, it rolled around in a square. And you can look. It's on page 217 of the 4th Edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, it shows in red arrows the path of the of, of the boulder. And the path of the boulder is, is four 90-degree turns over and over and over and over. Yep. And, and I'll say so, so good things and bad things. Good thing. Mike already had this, like, ball of aluminum foil that he had balled up to yep. be the boulder and he kept moving the boulder around and if the boulder freaking hit you it was pretty rough let me see 2d6 and knocked prone and it was a plus seven attack which wasn't a whole lot but it was versus reflex none of you had reflex yes except the ranger 
Yeah, I mean, Paladin, Fire. I mean, yeah. We, so this room, this room, I had a character down to, um, he had failed two death saving throws. He was on death's door, and, and we were able to get a healing potion into him to keep him from actually dying before we got to, to, to the, the last room. But yeah, that boulder attack was rough, and you were ruthlessly, ruthlessly playing that, that, that worm priest Yep. That dragon shield, those slingers, like there was something in the room that kept sticking us to the, to the oh, when, when we were not prone. Yep. And man, those, uh, those slingers would took advantage of that as they sniped us from up, up on those ledges. Yep. And so did the worm priest. And I had, a, I remember having a revelation in this room too. And I kept trying to think of these perfect plans to deal with these rooms. And finally it was like, Chris was like, no, let's just charge. Let's just, let's just rush through and charge and deal with it. Because every round that we equivocate, we take damage and, and we lose resources. So uh, we ultimately did that, and, and we did rush them and overpower them and 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 win the day. But I, I learned a lot there, and 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 I learned that from Chris. So whenever I play now, and I play in in, in, in a couple games now, but whenever I play, I, I I learn the lesson of not overthinking things. Like just every round you overthink, every round you try some cute little thing. You're losing hit points. Just make it happen. Yeah, I'd say that's that's pretty clear. I, I think what also made this especially difficult was that boulder had a speed of eight, which is ridiculous. So that boulder, because it was it was a large boulder, it could essentially make a full rotation of that little square path. I think in like two, maybe three rounds. But it it was a fast boulder that just kept going. Yeah, we had a rough time in this room. Yep, fun. But nearly died. And and then there was this optional fifth area that we could find our way into, right? Yep. Yep. The uh the fifth area was was basically the, the boss. And um it was kind of interesting when I was when I was looking back over this dungeon, it immediately made a parallel with the uh the, the, the Pathfinder campaign we recently started, where it's kind of an optional boss and it gives you that, that caution of Hey, this boss may be actually kind of overpowered for your players. If 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 you think they're going to die, you might want to have a Deus Ex Machina set up to to keep them from actually, you know, wiping their their newly played characters, so that you don't introduce them to this game and immediately like, all right, hand over your character sheets. Rip. Yeah, Pathfinder has gotten a ton of credit. So so what Mike's referring to is we are currently our our current game that we ran even earlier this week. Um is a Pathfinder game where I've challenged myself to run a whole campaign completely out of the beginner's box, using nothing but beginner's box pawns, beginner's box monsters. Um, and so far, it, it, it's going pretty well. It's a lot of fun. Those limitations are fun. But in that first dungeon, that Black Fang's dungeon, Black Fang the dragon, the black dragon, is optional, and there's that whole warning. And, and in this dragon, it's um, Cesarthorax. Sure. Man, I don't miss those fourth edition names. Shazuzu. Shazuzu Thaxaraxamaxi, whatever. Yeah. I don't miss those fourth edition dragon names. But anyway, um, yeah, same thing. So, so Mike, are you suggesting that Paizo blatantly copied something from Wizards? N- no, because I think wouldn't the, wouldn't the Paizo have come out before this? No. Um, uh, three point, so Pathfinder came out as a reaction to 3.7, or to, to sorry, to fourth edition. Ah. So the beginner's box would have been way after this 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 Dungeon Master's adventure. Um, I don't really think they copied each other. Uh, so I'm I'm 
I'm being facetious. I really like Paizo products. I have a shelf full of them. I'm a huge Paizo customer. I love the pawns. I love everything. But I think both this introductory adventure, actually, I can think of three that did this. The Red Box from 4E Essentials yep. had the same thing. This initial adventure for the 4E DMG had this conceit. And then Pathfinder had the same conceit of, hey, Dragons is in the name. Dragons is kind of a big deal. Dragons is what people want to fight. So we're going to throw a low-level dragon at first-level characters. And, again, it's a, it's a conceit in all three of those beginner products. And it's a conceit that I really don't like. Like, looking back, I would change the Pathfinder dungeon. I would change the Redbox dungeon. And I wonder if you would change this dungeon to say that, you know, dragons are really something that you should work your way up to. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. It actually just gave me a thought. Uh, I wonder if it's possible that these guys are actually kind of lifting a trope off of uh, video game role-playing games because there are tons and tons of RPGs out there where you start the RPG and in that introductory of here's how to play this game, here's how to here's how to you know move your character on your screen, here's how the turn-based combat works. Pretty much the the opening to every RPG is it's going to put you up against that final boss of the RPG in the opening. And you do a gimped battle against that boss. And there's always that scene where, where he strikes your character down and then he does his little gloat thing. And then he, he buggers off to be encountered at the end of the game. So I almost wonder if, if in this, in what these guys are trying to do is kind of recreating that, but having it be a little more binary since they can't directly control how how that DM makes makes that that enemy interact. It almost wonders if if they're kind of trying to play off that trope. Yeah, it's a fun idea too that it, that never occurred to me is is treat it as hey here's the big bad and you encounter him now and then hopefully that that wets your whistle to to beat him later. Yep, yep, yep. So I, this this last fight was rough. Um, we ultimately did I remember kill this dragon and, and bring his his severed head back to the interior end with us as a trophy. Um, did you nerf that at all for us, or did you run it straight out of the book? I ran it straight out of the book. I mean, he had all two hundred plus hit points, and you guys, you guys did it. Um, I didn't, I didn't pull any strings in this run as a DM. I didn't feel like I could do the math right at that point, or make the the proper decisions. Since this is my first time as a DM to to nerf or or make any changes and not just ruin it completely. So, Mike, you've listened to the show, yep, and I I've talked about some of my regrets and you specifically looking me across the table whenever I nerf something or go easy on you guys or don't wipe you guys. But I talked about the red box and how I didn't wipe you with those four guards. Yep. And I remember you specifically being like, whatever dude was any, did you have the benefit of any of that um, experience that you had where I didn't wipe you to make you say, you know what? I'm going to be merciless. I'm going to not pull punches and I'm going to let the dice fall where they may. Um, that's a good question, and I, I don't know if it would have been that. I, I think in this one specifically, I, I I didn't pull any punches because they were brand new characters. You guys weren't invested in them. You hadn't spent that much time with them. So I was actually probably a little more willing to, to, to kill you guys, if we're just being blunt about it, to say, hey, hey, hey here's your new Minotaur character that you love. Oh, and he got crushed by a boulder. Sorry, Dusty. You have to write a new one. No, that's fair. Um, but 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 that's a good point. And I and I think when I've listened to previous episodes, I think I think one of the things that that comes up often 
when uh, when you guys start start talking about players' death is just that anxiety of having having your character die because I get real anxiety when one of my characters starts to get low on health and I'm just like, oh my god, I can't let this character die. I, and, and and I don't know what it is that really draws me into that character. I mean, there is some time commitment and there is some attachment to it in that sense, but I mean, it's it's a spreadsheet. It, it takes like less than an hour to roll a character. So I really think it is just that emotional investment you make into forming their character that when they're about to die, it's like, Oh, this, this little person that I've made is in jeopardy. And I think when you're in that first level character, you don't have that emotion. So it's a little easier. So while you sometimes have pulled punches in the past and I may have called you out on it, there's a piece inside of me that's grateful (laughs) that you've been merciful. Well, not anymore. Uh, I learned that lesson. Um, that's okay. You can kill you. You can kill my healer at any time. I think the accomplishments feel realer when you don't play. Yeah, I agree. All right. Anything? So this this was your first DM experience. Um, we talked about lessons learned room by room. Anything that that like after we left and you were kind of alone with your thoughts, cleaning up after the session. Anything that you thought about that you regret that you were happy with? Like what lessons did you take away into your next game? Man, I'm going to have to pull it, throw away all these monster and player cards. <laughs> I had so much garbage from that first game of just used monster and player combat cards that it was just like, okay, well, I spent all this time and work into it, and now it's garbage. Um, yeah, that stuff wasn't... When you use the checkboxes and all that, it really wasn't... Re- no, no, it was it was all disposable. I, I think, actually, I also got to the point where I... I just started using index cards after that to cut down on some of the prep time because I was literally photocopy, paper cutter, organize, write. And so I just went and I think the next game I just got index cards and I would just write the name and then keep a few base stats. And if you guys had any any uh, any poisons Conditions or any or whatever, just yeah, jot it down. Then I jotted it down. I think that was the first lesson I learned that what I did for this game was just way too much material investment that's fair all right brian should we call that rpg lessons learned for this week i think that was a phenomenal rpg lessons learned (laughs) you spoke a lot i did i but i enjoyed listening that's the important part i think we should bring mike back next week to talk about the hall of the spider god i think that'd be great i would love that all right let's do that so next next time uh hall the spider god which is the adventure from the dungeons and dragons for dummies which is the next adventure that mike ran and uh thank you for listening And if you are listening and you like the podcast, why don't you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or download us uh, on Google Play Music if you have an Android device. However you listen to us, if there's a way to review and share, please do that. We would appreciate it. Yeah, And and to strengthen the call of action, if you are listening to us, you're one of like 30 people. And and not begging for more listeners. We're going to keep doing this regardless. I love doing the show. It's really fun for me. Um, we're going to keep recording just because I like it and it helps me. But if you are listening and you like the show, you're one of a very select few. So anything you can do to review um, would be greatly appreciated. I will say this. The stuff that I normally record orders and orders and orders of magnitude more listeners than this. I would like to get this number up, Dusty. You know, I would too, but I'm going to keep doing it regardless. Quick, I will too. Quick question as a, a listener and now a participator. If I download Stitcher and add this podcast through Stitcher, does that count as a subscription for you? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, so there's not one way to get podcasts. There are multiple ways. And the only way that 
you can really track engagement is by downloads. I mean, there are pe- ways people fudge it. Like Stitcher will tell you if somebody listened to the podcast, which is awesome. But Stitcher is also not my favorite platform. Does Stitcher tell you when I listen to the podcast? I, it tells me that like somebody. X number of people listen to the podcast for X amount of time. You should have at least one. Heck yeah. Because <laughs> that's me. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate that. You're welcome. All right. Thank you, everyone. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.